At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, ladies, we are back with another Crime Estate podcast. Hey, y'all. So good to see you, Heather, and so good to see our producer, Melanie. Welcome to 2024. It's been an interesting year in the world of real estate. Not only have real estate rates come down a little. Mel, do you have like an angel sound you can play on that soundboard? Yeah, like hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) Heather, you sent us a cool story. Yeah. I mean, obviously in our world, interest rates are a huge factor, but in the rest of the world's interesting real estate news, um, You know, if y'all have listened to this podcast from the beginning, you know that we've all been a little bit obsessed with the Murdoch murders, Melanie maybe in particular, Mm -hmm. and also the trial of Alec Murdoch. And just this week, the house at Modell has been listed for auction with a starting reserve price of a million one. So, you know, a little interesting uh, real estate sale to start the year. So the property was purchased in 2023. I mean, this house and this um, bigger land has changed hands a few times, but the family doesn't actually want the house. That the ones that um, purchased it earlier this year, they really just wanted the larger property for the hunting in Timberland. So they're selling off about the 21 acres that includes the actual property, the home itself, the four bedroom, four and a half bath house. They are not selling off the dog kennels. Um, if you know the Murdoch story, they're pretty notorious. Well, and 21 acres sounds huge, but I think originally the whole property is what, like 1,700 acres that they bought? Yeah, this is sort of kind of like ranch land. Um, or it, it, to me, the analogy is in like the, you know, the Texas Hill Country when people get these kind of uh, family ranches where they play and they may actually do some um agriculture or there's some cattle, but they're also kind of for fun. This is sort of what I imagine it is, but with hunting and timber in in the low country. Um, but so that it, auction is going to start around February 15th, I think. Well, I think it's oh, started it, already. So okay. an auction lasts, you know, like oh, a couple right. of weeks or a set amount of time. So the auction has started. It has a starting reserve price of a million one. And then the auction will close on February 15th. So if you're interested in the Modell property, you still have a couple of weeks. Well, and I don't want to digress today because we have a really good and important story to tell. But there's been a lot going on in the whole Murdoch world right now. If you, you know, Becky Hill, who was the um, worked worked in the court and she wrote the book. Well, now she is being investigated on for potential jury tampering, oh. and she, the book came out that she plagiarized uh, a reporter, and so they had to take out the take back the book. So there's a lot going on in the Murdoch world if you haven't caught up. So not in South Carolina, but today we're going to be in Connecticut. When I think of Connecticut, I think of an 80s TV show. Can you guess which one? Um, Very Connecticut-y. Connecticut-y. Connecticut. What is the word for that? I don't that? know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, because Aww. I mean, 80s TV in Connecticut. Okay. 
you, you, but you sent this out in the text chain on our little group uh-huh. earlier. And so I actually Googled iconic <laughs> 80s Connecticut TV. And wow. so I have a guess, okay. but it's only because I Googled it. Okay. What's your what guess? about you, Mel? Do you have no idea? My guess is who's the boss. Yes. Yay. All right. Yay. Good job. <laughs> I love that yeah. show. And now that I think about it, like, I mean, Tony Danza does not strike me as super Connecticut, but um, I don't, Judith, what's her name? Judith Light. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Angela. Angela, yeah, yeah she ha- she's very yeah, very proper yes, Connecticut. That's exactly what I think of when I think of Connecticut. And but- I think that part of Connecticut was really close to the in New York because mm-hmm. a lot of people who work in the city live in Connecticut. Well, that's where Tony was from. Yes, York, yeah. So. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> I should go watch my reruns. Yeah. Um, okay, so I, I appreciate the brevity there, but this is uh, this is really intense. So we're going to get back to crime because it's what we talk about. We are also doing something new as this is the first time that the scene of the crime was an apartment rental unit. And as much fun it is to discuss gorgeous old mansions, the reality is that's not where most people live. Crimes can occur anywhere and to anyone. And we want to make sure that we are covering the broad diversity of victims and where people live. Also, the story is infuriating. I was so mad and triggered while researching and writing, but it's a story that needs to be told. Okay, so... Listeners, you don't know Elena like I do, but if Elena is infuriated, it's serious and her fury is like almost intoxicating. It it radiates out of her and I can feel it right now. And so I'm going to have a little glass of wine, a sip of my glass of wine and uh, go ahead. Okay. Let's, let's. All right. Tell us the story. Okay. So on December 12th, 2021, Lauren Smithfield was pronounced dead at the age of 23 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Bridgeport is a port city 60 miles from Manhattan and 40 miles from the Bronx and is the most populous city in the state of Connecticut. Lauren lived at 33 Plymouth Street at an 1,100 square foot multifamily home built in 1917. Her apartment, the the first floor, had two bedrooms and one bathroom. So when I call it an apartment, it's not what I think of. Like it wasn't like a big multi-level apartment. It was a cute little house. Yeah. So she was renting from like probably this house was like a house at one Mm -hmm. point that somebody broke up and made into rental units, not a high-rise apartment complex. Right. And the whole whole street looked like that. They all looked like little cookie cutter houses. Super cute. So Lauren's death sparked a new conversation about what is known as missing white woman syndrome, a phrase introduced into the lexicon by PBS anchor Gwen Ifill two decades ago. According to NPR, the term missing white woman syndrome is, quote, used to describe the media's fascination with and detailed coverage of the cases of missing or endangered white women compared to the seeming disinterest in covering the disappearances of people of color. Well, and, and we've talked about this several times, you know, and that's one of our goals for this year is to cover more diverse Mm -hmm. victims, more diverse crimes. But it's, it's been really something that's very much in the news recently, not just, you know, missing white woman syndrome, but we've talked about it with Native Americans and, you know, a lot of different minorities that they don't get the coverage in the news that a missing white woman might. And we're not saying like, you know, White women shouldn't get the coverage, but everybody right. should have equal coverage. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and it also isn't just about women and girls. Research, research has shown that there is a lack of media coverage when boys are missing, abducted, and murdered as well. Um, and also, just, just to kind of highlight that fact, have you ever heard of the case of LaToya Figueroa? I have not heard of LaToya Figueroa. Well, Mel, have you? No. 
she disappeared from Philadelphia the same year that Natalie Holloway disappeared from Aruba. And I know we have all heard of Natalie Holloway and continue to hear about Natalie, but never heard of Latoya's still unsolved disappearance. So just kind of highlight kind of what we're talking about there. I know that when we had uh, started off this podcast, we talked about John Bonet and, um, and we talked about how the media, including us, were so enthralled with the, with the story. And, you know, let's be honest now, part of it was of her picturesque, you know, beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, uh, white, blonde. I mean, like, the, yeah, these are the things that we should not be obsessed with by any means. But, you know, it, rich family. And we realized then that as much of... Uh, the story being fascinating mm-hmm. that the immediate attention at the time was captured in part because of what she looked like. Right. Absolutely. Well, and to bring this full circle and small world, you all know that Natalie Holloway's mom and yes. John Bonet's dad ended up dating, right? Yes. Yeah, that is weird. It's really okay, weird. Side I mean, note, but, but yeah. I mean, it's a small world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So back to Lauren. Lauren was a student at Norwalk community college and had her own business with dreams of becoming a physical therapist. And if you look at pictures of Lauren, she was a beautiful black woman with a love of travel. And I mean, she was absolutely stunning, like beautiful. Really, really pretty. So on the evening of December 13th, 2021, Chantel Fields text messaged her daughter, Lauren. It was unlike Lauren to not contact her mom during the day, especially after a date with a guy that she met on the dating app Bumble. Now, two of the three of us were all married well before online dating apps, but today they are commonplace and very standard way to meet singles. Bumble is unique in that for heterosexual matches, the woman makes the first move by contacting matched males. That's so interesting. I mean, you're right. I I did not grow up in a world of online dating, and it sounds terrifying. But there's something to me that makes online dating almost feel like a real estate or a realtor relationship too. Like you are um, meeting somebody you don't know, Mm -hmm. maybe in a strange place. And so I think, I don't know, I'll be curious. We can talk about this later, Mm -hmm. but I think there's a lot of like the same checks and balances. Like, hey, I'm meeting this guy and his name is XXX and here's a picture of his profile and his phone number is whatever. And we're going to meet here. I mean, I do that when I'm meeting a client that I know. I'll mm-hmm. send to my husband or my team. I'll be like, hey, y'all check in with me in 20 minutes. Here's my code word. Much like you would do for dating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It, um, Bumble is kind of one of the more popular online apps nowadays. Um, I know my sister and her friends have tended to use it versus I remember when it we it first came out, like Match.com, I think oh, was yeah. the, the really mm-hmm. popular one. But they like a lot of the fact that Bumble, that kind of girls are the one that are reaching out to mm-hmm. match um, from that perspective. But what, what you just said, Heather, reminds me of the similarities with um, real estate because I have a friend, one of my sister's friends, it, she, she She's a TikTok influencer. She's great and very smart lawyer. But she also has a whole series of TikToks about basically evaluating people's Bumble ads. Like, so they'll send uh, they'll send it to her, and she'll be like, "Nope, you should have done this picture. Wow. You have too many comments about this. This is how you want to portray yourself." I mean, she does like it, staging, yeah, a Hebrew way, but it, it is like staging. You're right, totally, because you're like, this is your one stop you know, a chance to get someone to click on them and, or, in, you know, a house, come take a look at it. And you want to put your best foot forward in a way that is inviting and interesting, mm-hmm. makes you want to know more. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe if this whole real estate thing doesn't work out, we can be a 
Bumble, Bumble yeah. <laughs> Bumble a Bumble consultant? Oh, that sounds better. Consultant sounds better. <laughs> She's just good with words. Okay, but it sounds like, because we've digressed a little bit, it sounds like Lauren was smart and like usually texted her mom. Right. After a date. Right, right. So when Chantel's texts and calls went unanswered, she and her son, Lauren's brother, Tavar Gray Smith, went to the Plymouth Street apartment at 33 Plymouth Street in Bridgeport. Upon arriving, they found a note that read, quote, if you're looking for Lauren, call this number. Chantel immediately called the number and waited for the landlord, Hector Torres, to come downstairs. He owned the apartment and lived upstairs. Torres told her that Lauren had died the previous day. Wait, so she went over to the apartment and had no idea her daughter was dead. She just thought it was odd that she hadn't heard from her. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's crazy on a number of levels. But if I'm thinking about it from a real estate perspective, like let's just talk leases for a second. Not that it's the landlord's job to like notify a family member of a death. You would think the police would do that. But leases in the state of Texas specifically have a section Mm -hmm. which asks like, who should the landlord contact in case of an emergency or death? Mm -hmm. And surely that's pretty standard nationwide. I mean, wouldn't you think? And I mean, not to mention this is 2021, right? So he could probably Google her or check her Facebook page, like send a message to someone who has the same last name on Facebook. Like, hey, could you give me a call? Right. There are a number of ways Mm -hmm. someone could have easily found her mother or brother. For sure. I totally agree. It just kind of seems like the kind and right thing to do. At least he left the note, though. Um, But yeah, totally. When the landlord met with Lauren's mom, he gave her the number of the detective who had arrived on scene the night before. Tavar immediately called the detective and was told that Lauren was found dead at the apartment and that they were not required to call the family because they had found Lauren's passport in the home and therefore knew who she was. I'm sorry. Okay, now I am infuriated. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I had the sip of wine. You're saying that because they knew who she was, there was no reason to notify the family. That's what they're telling the brother. Correct. I mean, every time you see something on news, they say, we're not going to give, you know, give the person's name until the family has been notified. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I just thought this was standard operating procedure. Okay, stop. We're going to pause while I Google real quick. Okay. Okay, so I'm reading through all of this, and I'm not going to read it to you all because it's a, you know, a Uniform Procedures Act. But essentially, you know, it says the victim's families need to be notified in a timely manner, in a sensitive manner. I mean, they're very specific on what the outlines of of the requirements are mm-hmm. for notifying a family of a death. So right. that's crazy that yeah. they didn't notify her. Yeah. And you said that was 2008? 2008. Yeah. Okay. It was, yeah. Totally. They totally should have notified Lauren's mother. That's just the humane and just and right thing to do. And that, and it's actually because of the public outrage over this case, there has been a change to a Connecticut law becoming effective on October 1st, 2022. Notification of a deceased person's family must be done within 24 hours after the deceased person has been discovered. Oh, I'm glad that, I mean- It's a horrible story, but I'm glad something Something, good came out of it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if that wasn't infuriating enough, here's what the police report details happened the night of December 12th. Lauren was on a date with an older man whom she met on the dating app Bumble. The 37-year-old man, whom he later found out is Matthew LaFontaine, reported to police that Lauren had invited him to her apartment and that the two were taking tequila shots when Lauren suddenly got sick and went to the bathroom to throw up. When she returned from the bathroom, they drank more tequila with mixers this time, played games, ate, and started a movie. He said that Lauren fell asleep on the sofa and that he picked her up, carried her to bed, and fell asleep beside her. He further stated that he woke up around 6.30 and saw that Lauren wasn't breathing and had blood coming out of her nose. 
He called police and began chest compressions at the direction of the 911 operator. According to paramedics who arrived on scene, Lauren was lying on her back with dried blood around her nose and she was pronounced dead on the scene. And so, of course, he was immediately brought in for questioning, right? I was afraid of that, Alana. I was afraid of that. Well, it gets worse because according to police, they didn't follow up with him because he was a nice guy and they didn't find any evidence of foul play. Uh, I guess I just figured that if the police find you like with, near, around, or I I don't know, actually sleeping with a dead body, that you would just naturally be brought in for questioning, even if they didn't suspect he had done anything. Mm -hmm. Like, wouldn't they want to understand his story and what happened? Yeah. Question him. Right, right. Well, that doesn't make your blood boil. Listen to this. The family, desperate for answers, continued to call the police. And according to Lauren's family, they were told by Officer Kevin Cronin, to stop calling his phone, and that Matthew LaFontaine was a good guy and to just leave it alone. Okay, that's heartbreaking, Mm -hmm. but it reminds me, I just listened to this podcast. um, It's called What Happened to Libby Caswell? And this reminds me of something that happened in that case. In this situation, it's a little bit different. It's like a a boyfriend, girlfriend, where the boyfriend is being abusive. Mm -hmm. And so the mom kept calling the police to report that, you know, this boyfriend was showing up at their house and making threats. But by the time the police would get there, he would be gone. And so eventually the police actually gave the mom a nuisance notice for calling them so much, asked her to stop calling them, you know, and unfortunately the daughter later died not very long afterwards. And the police really didn't question that guy either. That is hard. That is all. I mean, the whole thing. Everything's just heartbreaking about that and this. And I see this happen time and time again, especially with minorities. And I'm Hispanic. Um, and I've had someone close to me, my sister. She suffered a horrible loss. And she, too, has met with similar statements from law enforcement. And it's a terrible, heartbreaking experience to endure. Yeah. I mean, you've been such a great advocate for your sister. And I should add, we're not bashing on the police. Like 99% of officers perform a great public service. But it is infuriating with someone in the that line of work and with that responsibility doesn't hold up like their end of their social contract. Absolutely. We have we all have an immense respect for law enforcement, but I think that's what makes it hurt even worse. Like it's because of that respect and that admiration that we have for law enforcement. When stories like this happen, when you hear about it, it really is a punch in the gut. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. So it doesn't appear that the police did a thorough inspection of the home or even treated it like a potential crime scene from the beginning. Lauren's mom went to the apartment and found a used condom in the trash can, even though her date said they did not have sex, bloody sheets, and even a mysterious pill, none of which was taken by forensics. I mean, if you think about it, there was glasses that were they mm-hmm. had been drinking from that were still in the kitchen and still in the living room. At a minimum, if they're suspecting or wanting to investigate, did mm-hmm. she take something? Um, you know, what did she, was she taking drugs? Was she roofied? Like any mm-hmm. of those things, you would think that they would do some sort of modicum of testing right. of this. And it seems like they didn't at all. And at this point in time, they don't really have any idea why she died or how she died. Wouldn't mm-hmm. they want to do some sort of investigation? Right. She was 23. She, you know, this wasn't natural. Right, right. So after months of waiting, the family did finally receive the coroner's report stating that Lauren died of a mix of fentanyl and alcohol. The family vehemently maintains that Lauren did not use drugs and questioned how the fentanyl entered into her system. I, I'm just, can we pause here for a second? Mm-hmm. I am terrified of this whole fentanyl crisis. And it, I mean, it sounds like it's coming into things that you wouldn't think it would be in. Right. Not that I'm saying any drugs are safe, but, you know, as like as teenager moms. Yes. 
my message is everything could have fentanyl, mm-hmm. and so you do nothing. Right. It's an abstinence message. It's <laughs> essentially what it is. Right. No, it's really scary. And I've seen news reports where like people put something on your car and so you go to move it and there's fentanyl. I mean, oh I, don't, I mean, I don't want to be alarmist or conspiracy theorist, but it is yes, a crisis. No, it is a crisis in America. And I mean, I didn't even know this part of the story and I was saying, should it, they have tested the the cups? I mean, now I'm like, Yes, they should have definitely tested the cups. Mm-hmm. You know, even let's say she willingly took it, you know, you know, air quotes, wouldn't they want to know where she got mm-hmm. it from? You know, and, and I just feel like there's a lot of questions that um, good police work, I mean, and would also, have done research. Right. I think it's suspect that she got sick mm-hmm. and then he stayed. The gentlemanly yeah. thing to do is you're not feeling well. I enjoyed our date. I would love to call you tomorrow. Right. Here are two Tylenol and a glass of water. You're and absolutely right. Who wants right. to be hooking up after the person's been right. no. growing up? Yeah, you're, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Absolutely. So on what would have been Lauren's 24th birthday, January 23rd, 2022, her family organized a march outside of the Morton Government Center. They sing happy birthday and released red and pink balloons. Shortly after the march, Bridgeport Mayor Joseph P. Gannon made comments saying, quote, Death notifications should be done in a manner that illustrates dignity for the deceased and respect and compassion for the family. And like I mentioned previously, Lauren's family were instrumental in the law that was passed that required Connecticut law enforcement to notify a deceased person's family of the death within 24 hours of identification. So in December of 2023, Chantel Fields and Lauren's family filed a $30 million lawsuit against the city of Bridgeport stating, quote, My daughter, Lauren, was a beautiful, young black woman with her whole life ahead of her. She was denied the basic right of an unbiased death investigation. But as of today, there hasn't been any movement or transparency for the family of the status of the case. The family still has many questions and not enough answers. Her cause of death is still listed as an overdose and no charges have been filed against anyone. So her 26th birthday then is coming up, like maybe right as we release this, we're recording a little bit Mm -hmm, before that, but... mm -hmm. I'm sure that with every birthday and anniversary and holiday that passes with no resolution, you know, that's just heartbreaking for the family. Mm-hmm. I, losing a child is one thing, and it's, I can only imagine so heartbreaking, mm-hmm. but losing them in a situation where you feel like their death wasn't investigated properly, mm-hmm. that just there's no closure there, and there's an angst that's probably so... That just doesn't go away. Yeah, you have to have that closure. I I mentioned my sister earlier, and not to get too much into it or or digress too much. I do want to share it at at some point, but she's very very similar. Her um, spouse passed away, and there's been no resolution for her. And so multiple reasons why this was triggering and upsetting and just infuriating for me, but that too. like It hits really close to home on this, and and that is difficult. a thing to have to like, like you said, every anniversary, every birthday that passes, it's very difficult for for her and the whole family. Yeah. But you know, and no one wants to be in the club, and no one could imagine having to endure something like this. But there is some solace in the fact that Chantel and the rest of Lauren's family do have another family that they are able to commiserate with. Someone else lost a friend, a family member, and a daughter. Brenda Lee Walls lost her life the night that Lauren lost hers, also in Bridgeport. Wait, what? Same night? Same night. And similar, like, age-ish? She was older. Okay. She was older. Um, but like Lauren, her family was not notified. And also really weird circumstances. The cause of death is documented to have been natural causes. 
but there's lots of concerns and the family has lots of questions. According to the family, law enforcement officials have completely mishandled the case. And like Lauren, the family was not notified by police that Brenda was found dead. They were told by an acquaintance that he found Brenda unresponsive and called 911 when he couldn't shake her awake, saying that all he knew is that the ambulance and coroner drove her away. Brenda's family began making several calls to local police, hospitals, and funeral homes, but it wasn't until they reached out to the medical examiner that they found out that Brenda had died. The medical examiner had already performed her autopsy. I don't even know what to say to that. Mm -hmm. That is horrifying. Mm -hmm. According to Brenda's mom, quote, it's almost like they're not aware of her death or they just don't care. That made us angry. She was raised and born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, paid her taxes, voted, and they treated her like she was nothing, like she was roadkill. Dorothy Rawls Washington and her sister would talk or text every day. And after two days of hearing nothing, she became concerned. The last day that she had heard from Brenda, she mentioned that she was going to visit a male neighbor, the same neighbor who later found her unresponsive. Dorothy, another sister, their niece and her niece's boyfriend went to the neighbor's home looking for Brenda. That is when he told her that he couldn't wake her on December 12th. Brenda's family was also instrumental in the passage of the law. And on the same day that Lauren's family filed that lawsuit against the city, so did Brenda's family, each suing for $30 million. I mean, it makes me wonder, you know, if there was like a major fentanyl crisis in this area and there was just, you know, a lot of deaths that got overlooked. Not that that's right. I mean, this is 100% infuriating and I feel so bad for these families. Mm -hmm. They totally deserved closure that they didn't get. And you know, probably the police and the medical examiner, everybody just thought they would go away. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. they, they didn't think they would step up and be vocal advocates for their children. And I'm so glad they did. Right. For sure. So this was a story that we all felt needed telling. It isn't a beautiful beachfront property or high rise in New York City or a rich aristocratic family, but as important as worthy of notoriety. Oh, 100 percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we discussed this earlier. It was a little difficult to research the home. Um, it was, she was renting it, um, it's our first time doing a rental. Um, and then there's just not a lot of information about the story online, which is another reason why we felt it was needed to share. But, um, what we were able to find is that it sold on July 17th, 2023 for $385,000. And from all we can tell, it's still being used as a rental. Um, but yeah, we just didn't have a lot of information on that yeah. particular home. It looked like in 2022 that that unit itself was rented mm-hmm. for about $1,500, which I thought was a pretty good deal for a 2-1. And the pictures were cute. I mean, it's an older house mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, it, it's popular around here for people to rent kind of like a two bedrooms in an older house. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, and obviously... Well, actually, I don't know. Do, do you think they had to disclose it? Well, so I've been Googling over uh-huh. here while we've been recording. And apparently in Connecticut, you don't have to disclose the death on a property either for sale or for lease. Mm-hmm. So, okay. um, yeah, I, uh, Connecticut considered death on a property to be a non-material fact. That means it does not require disclosure. And when I Googled the address, it, like just Googling the address like you would if you were purchasing a home – the top news stories weren't about the death. It was about the the listings, the Zillow listings and the Redfin listings. So, I mean, you have to dig a few pages in to find anything showing the address. So. Well, and I think that's a good thing to bring up. Like if you're about to rent a home or you're going to buy a home, you can go to your local police department's website and typically do an address search. Mm-hmm. You know, we did that on the past couple homes we bought. And, you know, we actually 
not this house, but the house before this, we discovered that there were like three break-ins. And so I called the owners and I was like, hey, tell me the story of this. And, you know, it was, it it all made sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a good due diligence, Mm -hmm. you know, and again, other due diligence, you know, check the sex offender registry. Like if there are things you're curious about, the internet is your oyster, Mm -hmm. go figure it out, Mm -hmm. but do your due diligence before you buy or move into a property. Yeah. So, I mean, would you rent? I mean, how do we? I mean, it's a rental. I feel like, you know, part of the concern with, I think there are two concerns with a property where somebody has been murdered. You have the value concern Mm -hmm. and then you have the, would you live there because of the crime Mm -hmm. concern? So I think, you know, as a rental, the value sort of comes out of it because it's not your investment. Um, Maybe you get a better deal. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think so. I mean, it wasn't, it doesn't sound like it was a violent death. It sounds like maybe it was some sort of overdose, whether it was, Mm -hmm. you know, on her own part or maliciously Mm -hmm. intended. I, I think I would live there. Yeah. What about you? I think so as well. Oh, I think I would live there. Always so I know. Me. Yeah, it doesn't so make any sense. It doesn't me. make any sense. Mel? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I don't think that would be what would stop me mm-hmm. from it. I, I mean, I, I would be suspect about it from a buying, prop, you know, from a property value, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I would do a lot of research if they're like, I, it seems like a nice normal neighborhood, but I would definitely do a little bit of research into into crime mm-hmm. in the area. Well, and I'm so glad you brought us the story. I think what we would like our listeners to know is, you know, it's easy for us to find stories about prominent homes and prominent people, but we really want to cover stories from all sorts of different backgrounds and people of diverse backgrounds, whether it's socioeconomic or minorities or, you know, out, outside of the country even. So if you have an idea for a Crime Estate podcast episode, please email us. You can email us at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. That is the best way to give us story ideas. Mm-hmm. And we're so appreciative of all the people that have already emailed. We have a couple of great stories lined up as a result. So thank you all for that. Yeah. Absolutely. And just, you know, a reminder that, you know, we do want to engage with our listeners more in 2024 and get your ideas on our stories um, to us, as Heather was saying. But um, please, please first leave us a five-star review whenever you listen um, and wherever you listen to your podcast. And then at the end of your review, tell us why you would think it would be fun to do a live Zoom mini-sode with your podcast club or a group of closest friends. And we're going to try and do one interactive podcast a quarter and you could join us. Yeah, this is going to be so fun. Maybe a little terrifying because. Uh you know, like you said, Elena, we leave a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. Um, but I think it'll be fun. Yeah, it'll totally be fun. But I want to do a blooper reel with all of the stuff that is on the cutting room floor. Yeah. I think it'd be fun. This will yeah. be fun too. With no video. No, with no video. No cameras. video. No. Oh, Lordy. No. Mercy. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for the yeah. story. It was great. And I really appreciate it. And I thought it was well researched because I know the research on this was hard. So thanks for this, Elena. Yeah. And yeah, we'll see y'all next week. See ya. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a Crime Estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.